0: fast asleep. Thank you to all our listeners worldwide for being here. To all of you, I wish you a happy St. Patrick's Day today, though I'm told it's really just us crazy Americans that make so much out of this day. We do love our Irish. My dad's mom was Irish. But anyway, it really is just a coincidence that James Joyce is this week's author. Well, you've loved him before on Fastest Sleep, and that's understandable, because this Irishman is one of the most influential and important writers of the last century. We have two tales today from his Dubliners, and that's a short story collection. And interestingly, it is possible that the same woman is the main character in both of today's stories, separated by a few, or maybe a few more than a few, years. Many of Joyce's characters closely resemble his own family members, his friends, oh, even his enemies, and they're all from Dublin. The author, born in Dublin, is quoted as saying, I always write about Dublin because if I can get to the heart of Dublin, I can get to the heart of all the cities in the world. So yes, two stories today and the first is thought to be the most powerful in the collection. A young woman has been presented with what may be her last best hope for leaving a difficult home. But She finds herself frozen by guilt, by fear, by indecision. Oh, you know, if you're still awake, we'll fill you in on the second story when we come to that. But right now, let's tuck in, everybody, for Evelyn by James Joyce. She sat at the window, watching the evening invade the avenue. Her head was leaned against the window curtains, and in her nostrils was the odor of dusty cretin. That's a strong cloth used for curtains. Oh, she was tired. Few people passed. The man out of the last house passed on his way home she heard his footsteps clacking along the concrete pavement and afterwards crunching on the cinder path before the new red houses. One time, there used to be a field there in which they used to play every evening with other people's children. And then a man from Belfast bought the field and built houses in it. Not like their little brown houses, but bright brick houses with shining roofs. The children of the avenue used to play together in that field. The divines, the waters, the duns. Little Keok, the cripple, oh, she and her brothers and sisters. Ernest, however, never played, oh, he was too grown up. Her father used often to hunt them. In, out of the field, with his blackthorn stick. But usually, little Keok used to keep Nick's lookout and call out when he saw her father coming. Still, they seemed to have been rather happy then. Her father was not so bad then. And besides, her mother was alive. Ah, that was a long time ago. She and her brothers and sisters were all grown up. Her mother was dead. Dizzy Dunn was dead, too. And the waters had gone back to England. Everything changes. And now she was going to go away like the others. To leave her Home. Home. She looked around the room, reviewing all its familiar objects, which she had dusted once a week for so many years, wondering where on earth all the dust came from. Perhaps she would never see again those familiar objects from which she never dreamed of being divided. And yet, during all those years, She had never found out the name of the priest whose yellowing photograph hung on the wall above the broken harmonium, a keyboard instrument, beside the colored print of The Promises Made to Blessed Margaret Mary Alacoque. He, the priest, had been a school friend of her father. Whenever he showed the photograph to a visitor, her father used to pass it with a casual word, Ah, he's in Melbourne now. She had consented to go away, to leave her home. Was that wise? She tried to weigh each side of the question. In her home, anyway, she had shelter and food. She had those whom she had known all her life about her, of course, she had to work hard, both in the house and at business. Oh, what would they say of her in the stores, the shop where she worked, when they found out that she had run away with a fellow? Say she was a fool, perhaps? Oh, and her place. Her place would be filled up by advertisement. Miss Gavin would be glad. Oh, she had always had an edge on her especially whenever there were people listening. Miss Hill, don't you see those ladies are waiting? Look lively, Miss Hill, please. She would not cry many tears at leaving the stores. But in her new home, in a distant, unknown country, well, it would not be like that. Then she would be married. She, Evelyn. Evelyn. People would treat her with respect then. She would not be treated as her mother had been. Even now, though she was over 19, she sometimes felt herself in danger of her father's violence. She knew it was that that had given her the palpitations. When they were growing up, he'd never gone for her, like he used to go for Harry and Ernest because she was a girl. But latterly, he had begun to threaten her and say what he would do to her, only for her dead mother's sake. And now, she had nobody to protect her. Ernest was dead, and Harry, who was in the church decorating business, was nearly always down somewhere in the country. Besides, the invariable squabble for money on Saturday nights had begun to weary her unspeakably. She always gave her entire wages, seven shillings, and Harry always sent up what he could. But the trouble was to get any money from her father, He said she used to squander the money, that she had no head, that he wasn't going to give her his hard-earned money to throw about the streets, and much more, for he was usually fairly bad on Saturday night. Oh, in the end, he would give her the money and ask her, had she any intention of buying Sunday's dinner? And... She had to rush out as quickly as she could and do her marketing, holding her black leather purse tightly in her hand as she elbowed her way through the crowds and returning home late under her load of provisions. She had hard work to keep the house together and to see that the two young children who had been left to her charge went to school regularly and got their meals regularly It was hard work, a hard life, but now that she was about to leave it, she did not find it a wholly undesirable life. She was about to explore another life with Frank. Frank was very kind manly, open-hearted. She was to go away with him by the night boat, to be his wife and to live with him in Buenos Aires, where he had a home waiting for her. How well she remembered the first time she had seen him. He was lodging in a house on the main road where she used to visit. It seemed a few weeks ago he was standing at the gate his peaked cap pushed back on his head and his hair tumbled forward over a face of bronze and then they had come to know each other he used to meet her outside the stores every evening and see her home he took her to see the bohemian girl and she felt elated as she sat in an unaccustomed part of the theater with him He was awfully fond of music and sang a little. People knew that they were courting, and when he sang about the lass that loves a sailor, she always felt pleasantly confused. He used to call her Poppins out of fun. First of all, it had been an excitement for her to have a fellow, and then she had begun to like him. He had tales of distant countries. He had started as a deck boy at a pound a month on a ship of the Allen Line going out of Canada. He told her the names of the ships he had been on and the names of the different services. He had sailed through the Straits of Magellan and he told her stories of the terrible Patagonians. He had fallen on his feet in Buenos Aires, "'he said, and had come over to the old country "'just for a holiday. "'Of course, her father had found out the affair "'and had forbidden her to have anything to say to him. "'I know these sailor chaps,' he said. "'One day he had quarreled with Frank, "'and after that she had to meet her lover secretly.' the evening deepened in the avenue. The white of two letters in her lap grew indistinct. One was to Harry. The other was to her father. Ernest had been her favorite, but she liked Harry, too. Her father was becoming old lately, She'd noticed he would miss her. Sometimes he could be very nice. Not long before, when she'd been laid up for a day, he had read her out a ghost story and made toast for her at the fire. Another day, when their mother was alive, they had all gone for a picnic to the hill of Hoth. She remembered her father putting on her mother's bonnet to make the children laugh. Oh, her time was running out. But she continued to sit by the window, leaning her head against the window curtain, inhaling the odor of the dusty Cretan. Down far in the avenue... She could hear a street organ playing. Oh, she knew the air. Strange that it should come that very night to remind her of the promise to her mother. Her promise to keep the home together as long as she could. She remembered the last night of her mother's illness. She was again in the close dark room at the other side of the hall and outside she heard a melancholy air of Italy. The organ player had been ordered to go away and given sixpence. She remembered her father strutting back into the sick room saying, Damned Italians, coming over here. As she mused, the pitiful vision of her mother's life laid its spell on the very quick of her being. That life of commonplace sacrifices closing in final craziness. She trembled as she heard again her mother's voice saying constantly with foolish insistence. Devon Sharon. Now some have thought that James Joyce meant this to be ambiguous, and it is just nonsense Gaelic. But others have translated it as the end of pleasure is pain. Devon Sharon. She stood up in a sudden impulse of terror. Escape. She must escape. Frank would save her. He would give her life and perhaps love, too. But she wanted to live. Why should she be unhappy? She had a right to happiness, and Frank would take her in his arms, fold her in his arms. He would save her. She stood among the swaying crowd in the station at the north wall. He held her hand, and she knew that he was speaking to her, saying something about the passage over and over again. The station was full of soldiers with brown baggages, through the wide doors of the sheds, she caught a glimpse of the black mass of the boat lying in beside the key wall with elumed portholes. She answered nothing. She felt her cheek pale and cold, and out of a maze of distress, she prayed to God to direct her, to show her What was her duty? The boat blew a long, mournful whistle into the mist. If she went tomorrow, she would be on the sea with Frank, steaming towards Buenos Aires. Their passage had been booked. Could she still draw back after all he had done for her? Her distress awoke a nausea in her body and she kept moving her lips in silent, fervent prayer. A bell clanged upon her heart. She felt him seize her hand. Come! All the seas of the world tumbled about her heart. He was drawing her into them. He would drown her she gripped with both hands at the iron railing come no 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 it was impossible her hands clutched the iron in frenzy amid the seas she sent a cry of anguish Evelyn Evie he rushed beyond the barrier and called to her to follow he was shouted at to go on but he still called to her she set her white face to him, passive, like a helpless animal. Her eyes gave him no sign of love or farewell or recognition. <laughs> difficult choice in that tale and it's frustrating not to know what happens to her or maybe we find out in this next story. In this story her name is Maria. She is older and still unmarried and after serving as a nanny for many years the now grown children have found her work in the kitchen of an industrial laundry. Now, while attending a party, a party given by one of these children that she raised, she plays a traditional Irish game. Items are placed in saucers. People are blindfolded and they they select without knowing what it will be. Certain items, a ring, water, Things that are signified with special meaning. Well, Maria plays this game, blindfolded, of course, and she chooses or lands on clay. Clay. Clay signifies that she will die soon. Tuck in again, everybody, for Clay by James Joyce. The matron had given her leave to go out as soon as the women's tea was over, and Maria looked forward to her evening out. The kitchen was spick and span. The cook said you could see yourself in the big copper boilers. The fire was nice and bright. And on one of the side tables were four very big barmbracks. Now these barnbrecks oh, loaves of bread with currants. They seemed uncut, but if you went closer, you would see that they had been cut into long, thick, even slices and were ready to be handed round at tea. Maria had cut them herself. Maria was a very, very small person, indeed. But she had a very long nose and a very long chin. She talked a little through her nose, always soothingly. Yes, my dear, and no, my dear. She was always sent for when the women quarreled over their tubs and always succeeded in making peace. One day the matron had said to her, Maria, you are a veritable peacemaker. And the sub-matron and two of the board ladies had heard the compliment. And Ginger Mooney was always saying what she wouldn't do to the dummy who had charge of the irons if it wasn't for Maria. Oh, everyone was so fond of Maria. The women would have their tea at six o'clock, and she would be able to get away before seven. From Ballsbridge, a suburb of Dublin, to the Pillar, that's a memorial, to Admiral Nelson, that's twenty minutes and from the Pillar to Drumcondra, another suburb, twenty minutes, and twenty minutes to buy the things. Well, she would be there before eight. She took out her purse with the silver clasps and read again the words, A present from Belfast. She was very fond of that purse, because Joe had brought it to her five years before when he and Alfie had gone to Belfast on a Whit Monday trip. Whit Monday is a public holiday. In the purse were two half-crowns and some coppers. She would have five shillings clear after paying tram fare. Oh, what a nice evening they would have. All the children singing. Only she hoped that Joe wouldn't come in drunk. He was so different when he took any drink. Often, he had wanted her to go and live with them, but ah, she would have felt herself in the way, though Joe's wife was ever so nice with her. And she had become accustomed to the life of the laundry. Joe was a good fellow. She had nursed him, and Alfie, too. And Joe often used to say, mama is mama but maria is my proper mother after the break up at home the boys had got her that position in the dublin by lamplight laundry and she liked it Oh, she used to have such a bad opinion of Protestants, but now she thought they were very nice people, a little quiet and serious, but still very nice people to live with. Oh, and then she had her plants in the conservatory. Ah, oh, She liked looking after them. She had lovely ferns and wax plants, and whenever anyone came to visit her, she always gave the visitor one or two slips from her conservatory. There was one thing she didn't like, and that was the tracks, the religious texts, on the walks. But the matron was such a nice person to deal with, so genteel. When the cook told her everything was ready, she went into the woman's room and began to pull the big bell. In a few minutes, the women began to come in by twos and threes, wiping their steaming hands in their petticoats and pulling down the sleeves of their blouses over their red steaming arms. They settled down before their huge mugs, which the cook and the dummy, that's another kitchen worker, filled up with hot tea already mixed with milk and sugar, in huge tin cans. Maria superintended the distribution of the barnbreck and saw that every woman got her four slices. There was a great deal of laughing and joking during the meal. Lizzie Fleming said, Maria was sure to get the ring. And though Fleming had said that for so many Halloweves, Maria had to laugh and say she didn't want any ring or man either. And when she laughed, her grey-green eyes sparkled with disappointed shyness. And the tip of her nose nearly met the tip of her chin. And then Ginger Mooney lifted her mug of tea and proposed Maria's health, while All the other women clattered with their mugs on the table and said she was sorry she hadn't a sup of porter, dark beer, to drink it in. (laughs) And Maria laughed again till the tip of her nose nearly met the tip of her chin until her minute body nearly shook itself asunder because, well, she knew that Mooney meant well, though, of course, She had the notions of a common woman. But wasn't Maria glad? When the women had finished their tea and the cook and the dummy had begun to clear away the tea things, she went into her little bedroom and remembering that the next morning was a mass morning, changed the hand of the alarm from seven to six. And then... She took off her working skirt and her house boots and laid her best skirt out on the bed and her tiny dress boots beside the foot of the bed. She changed her blouse too and as she stood before the mirror she thought of how she used to dress for mass on Sunday morning when she was a young girl and she looked with quaint affection at the diminutive body which she had so often adorned in spite of its years she found it a nice tidy little body when she got outside the streets were shining with rain and she was glad of her old brown waterproof the tram was full and she had to sit on the little stool at the end of the car facing all the people with her toes barely touching the floor she arranged in her mind all she was going to do, and thought how much better it was to be independent and to have your own money in your pocket. She hoped they would have a nice evening. Well, she was sure they would, but she could not help thinking what a pity it was Alfie and Joe were not speaking. Oh, they were always falling out now, but when they were boys together, oh, they used to be the best of friends, but such was life. She got out of her tram at the pillar and ferreted her way quickly among the crowds. She went into Down's cake shop. Oh, but the shop was so full of people that it was a long time before she could get herself attended to. She bought a dozen of mixed penny cakes and at last came out of the shop laden with a big bag. And then she thought, what else would she buy? She wanted to buy something really nice. They would be sure to have plenty of apples and nuts oh it was hard to know what to buy and all she could think of was cake she decided to buy some plum cake Mm. but down's plum cake had not enough almond icing on top of it so she went over to a shop in henry street oh here she was a long time in suiting herself (laughs) And the stylish young lady behind the counter, who was evidently a little annoyed by her, asked her if it was a wedding cake she wanted to buy. Mm. That made Maria blush and smile at the young lady. But the young lady took it all very seriously and finally cut a thick slice of plum cake, parceled it up, and said, Two and four, please. She thought she would have to stand. "'in the Drumcondra Tram. "'But none of these young men, "'they didn't even seem to notice her. "'But an elderly gentleman, "'he made room for her. "'He was a stout gentleman, "'and he wore a brown hard hat. "'He had a square, red face "'and a grayish mustache. "'Maria thought he was a "'colonel-looking gentleman.' and she reflected how much more polite he was than those young men who simply stared straight before them. The gentleman began to chat with her about Hallow Eve and the rainy weather. He supposed the bag was full of good things for the little ones and said it was only right that the youngsters should enjoy themselves while they were young. Maria agreed with him and "'favored him with demure nods and hems. "'He was very nice with her, "'and when she was getting out at the canal bridge, "'she thanked him and bowed. "'And he bowed to her and raised his hat and smiled agreeably. "'And while she was going up along the terrace, "'bending her tiny head under the rain, "'she thought how easy it was to know a gentleman.' even when he has a drop taken. Everybody said, Oh, here's Maria, when she came to Joe's house. Joe was there, having come home from business, and all the children had their Sunday dresses on. There were two big girls in from next door, and games were going on. Maria gave the bag of cakes to the eldest boy, Alfie, to divide. And Mrs. Donnelly said, Oh, it was too good of her to bring such a big bag of cakes. And made all the children say, Thanks, Maria. But Maria said she had brought something special for Papa and Mama. Something they would be sure to like. And she began to look for the plum cake. She tried in Down's bag. Oh. And then in the pockets of her waterproof and then on the hall stand, but nowhere could she find it. And then she asked all the children, had any of them eaten it? By mistake, of course. But the children all said no, and looked as if they did not like to eat cakes, if they were to be accused of stealing. Everybody had a solution for the mystery. And Mrs. Donnelly said it was plain that Ah, Maria had left it behind her in the tram. Maria, remembering how confused the gentleman with the grayish mustache had made her, colored with shame and vexation and disappointment at the thought of the failure of her little surprise... And the two-and-four pence she had thrown away for nothing. She nearly cried outright. But Joe said, it didn't matter, and made her sit down by the fire. Oh, he was very nice with her. He told her all that went on in his office, repeating for her a smart answer which he had made to the manager. Maria did not understand why Joe laughed "'so much over the answer he had made, "'but she said that the manager must have been "'a very overbearing person to deal with. "'And Joe said, well, he wasn't so bad "'when you knew how to take him, "'that he was a decent sort, "'so long as you didn't rub him the wrong way. "'Mrs. Donnelly played the piano for the children, "'and they danced and sang. "'Then the next-door girls handed round the nuts.' Nobody could find the nutcrackers. And Joe was nearly getting cross over it and asked, How do they expect Maria to crack nuts without a nutcracker? But Maria said, Oh, she didn't like nuts and that they weren't to bother about her. And then Joe asked, Would she take a bottle of stout? And Mrs. Donnelly said, There was port wine, too, in the house, if she would prefer that. Maria said, She would rather they didn't ask her to take anything. But Joe insisted, so Maria let him have his way, and they sat by the fire, talking over old times. And Maria thought she would put in a good word for Alfie. But Joe cried that God might strike him stone dead if he ever spoke a word to his brother again. And Maria said she was sorry she had mentioned the matter. Mrs. Donnelly told her husband it was a great shame for him to speak that way of his own flesh and blood. But Joe said that Alfie was no brother of his, and there was nearly being a row on the head of it. Ah, but Joe said he would not lose his temper on account of the night it was, and asked his wife to open some more stout. The two next-door girls had arranged some Hallow Eve games, and soon everything was merry again. Maria was delighted to see the children so merry, and Joe and his wife in such good spirits. The next-door girls put some saucers on the table and then led the children up to the table blindfold. One got the prayer book, and the other three got the water, Oh, and one of the next door girls got the ring. Mrs. Donnelly shook her finger at the blushing girl as much as to say, Oh, I know all about it. They insisted then on blindfolding Maria and leading her up to the table to see what she would get. And while they were putting on the bandage, Maria laughed and oh, laughed again till. The tip of her nose nearly met the tip of her chin. They led her up to the table amid laughing and joking, and she put her hand out in the air as she was told to do. She moved her hand about here and there in the air and descended on one of the saucers. She felt a soft, wet substance with her fingers and was surprised that nobody spoke. "'or took off the bandage. "'There was a pause for a few seconds, "'and then a great deal of scuffling and whispering. "'Somebody said something about the garden, "'and at last Mrs. Donnelly said something very cross "'to one of the next-door girls "'and told her to throw it out at once. "'That was no play.' "'Maria understood that it was wrong that time, "'and so... She had to do it over again, and this time she got the prayer book. Well, after that, Mrs. Donnelly played Miss McLeod's Reel for the children, and Joe made Maria take a glass of wine, and soon they were all quite merry again. And Mrs. Donnelly said Maria would enter a convent before the year was out because she had got the prayer book. Maria had never seen Joe so nice to her as he was that night, so full of pleasant talk and reminiscences. She said they were all very good to her. At last, the children grew tired and sleepy, and Joe asked Maria would she not sing some little song before she went, one of the old songs. Mrs. Donnelly said, Oh, do please, Maria. And so, uh, Maria had to get up and stand beside the piano. And Mrs. Donnelly bade the children be quiet and listen to Maria's song. And then she played the prelude and said, Now, Maria. And Maria, blushing very much, began to sing in a tiny, quavering voice. She sang, I dreamt that I dwelt. And when she came to the second verse, well, she sang again. The first verse. I dreamt,
1: I dwelt in walls With vessels and surfaces
0: show her her mistake and when she had ended her song Joe was very much moved he said that there was no time like the long ago and no music for him like poor old Balf, the composer of the aria Maria had just sung whatever other people might say And his eyes filled up so much with tears that he could not find what he was looking for. And in the end, he had to ask his wife to tell him where the corkscrew was.
1: Jesus all, all too great.